Welcome to the panel, RNZ National. We have Sue Bradford and Scott Campbell and run off our feet with your wonderful feedback on pronunciation. Just a couple here. When speaking using the before a word beginning with a vowel, when the is available and is more pleasing to the ear. Uh, Lex says, the mispronounced item that used to grate on me was the RNZ text number being set as 2101 instead of 2101, but I hear you are saying it, saying it correctly these days, Wallace. Well done. Uh, guess what's back in the news? Capital gains and a wealth tax. You thought you'd heard the last, but no. Earlier this year, Chris Hipkins ruled out introducing the policy, saying under a government he led, there would be no wealth or capital gains tax after the election. And he said today, I have been clear with the caucus. We lost, therefore we start again. And that means everything comes back onto the table, and that includes a discussion around tax. Every year billions of dollars of capital gains are being made but almost none of a text. The Brightline text, test rather, introduced in 2015 and modified in 2021 is arguably a form of capital gains text but is limited in its application. So why don't we revisit it and what would a comprehensive Capital gains tax and a wealth tax look like now. With us is Dr. Ranjana Gupta, a senior taxation lecturer at AUT's business school. Dr. Gupta, welcome to the panel. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. And Dr. Gupta, first of all, let's address a wealth tax. Quite contentious. What do you think? Is there any merit in that at all? Look, um, the purpose of, in my opinion, to um, implement wealth tax is that it should raise substantial revenue and that should be done efficiently and it should be fair and it should be difficult to avoid. Then the question arises, what form of uh, wealth tax should be implemented? Because according to uh, my opinion, looking at various countries, the wealth tax could be imposed in or implemented in two ways. One is one-off wealth tax. And well-designed one-off taxes are difficult to avoid because they are based on the behavior that has already occurred in past values. So if it is one-off wealth tax, Uh, which is assessed by reference to wealth on the same day or shortly before the policy was announced, there would be little chance to respond. And individuals of similar means should not be taxed differently because one owns a house, for example, and other holds a cash while they are waiting to buy a house. Yeah, now, um, so I, I, we've got a panel, I'll just jump, get, let them jump in very, very soon. But just remind me, Rondon, let's go back to basics on a capital gains tax for those who are, uh, you know, aren't so familiar. So does the capital gains tax mean that you can buy assets, not just homes, but also art, shares, classic cars, racehorses, sell them later at a profit and keep 100% of the money you make? Look, um, we do not have comprehensive capital gain tax. So as per your question, a boat or a car or shares, it depends on the whole situation, whether they will be taxed under the Income Tax Act Uh, or they will not be taxed. 
because there are provisions under the Income Tax Act at present for sale of shares also, um, where a taxpayer may be caught. We have a section CB4, CB3 under the Income Tax Act. If a share, uh, if a person buys a buy shares with an intention to sell, like before bright line test, we have the provision under the land regime. If someone buys a land, a house with an intention to sell, they are captured under that section and they have to pay tax. Yeah, the but bright line. The problem, yes. Yeah. Before yeah. Brightline. Now, uh, we've got a, a panel. So why I bring this up uh, again is because um, some weeks ago, pre-election, David Cunliffe, I did a panel poll. Will you support a capital gains tax? I was astonished at the response, the biggest response we've ever had, and 90% said they would. So politically, it's sort of um, one would wonder why it wasn't on the table. What's your thoughts on this issue? Well, I think it's the biggest mistake of all the mistakes Labor made in its election campaign was in the total rejection of any form of wealth tax or extension of capital gains tax. Capital gains is only one of a number of measures, and the Greens and Te Party Māori really gained ground because they came out really strongly on this, on income redistribution, and um, um, saying that actually our country, many of the people in this country are simply too poor, whether in work or out of work, and at the same time we've got an ever-increasing wealth gap and people with property are just getting wealthier and wealthier. Property investors run the economy. And so you have to treat this seriously, and um, there's a whole range of ways. There's not one way of taxing the wealthy. We need all those ways to make this a much fairer country. Scott, do you want to come in, and then we'll come back to you, Anjana? Yeah, and I guess uh, Chris Hipkins bringing up now somewhat a moot point, right, because we've got another probably six years until he has another opportunity. Three years' time, they can take it to the election. But with all that Labour has to rebuild, they've got a long time coming back. I I think it's not surprising to me that that poll said um, that people probably supported a capital gains. I was expecting around 60, 65, but not 90. Well, I actually think one of the things is that they've just, they missed the boat on explaining what it actually is. And when people started to lobby around, it would be on your home and the family's home and all of those sorts of things, the message got missed, and I think that's what spooked people. And the minute you take that to an election campaign, it was always going to be something that they would lose on, uh, which is why I suspect that they, they kicked it for touch. Do you want to respond to that, uh, both of them, Regina? Yeah, I will. Look, I agree with what you are saying. Uh, there needs to be, there is a need for some equitable distribution um, of wealth, and uh, there is a need for some form of tax, either by um, wealth tax or capital gain tax or land tax, uh, land holding tax. Um, but another side, we have to look at which one is um, giving more benefits compared to the costs involved. Um, most of the countries um, in the world have capital gain tax, no doubt, but they are big countries, and in spite of having a capital gain tax in big countries, they are not collecting a lot of revenues from that. Um, and wealth tax, at present to my knowledge, is only in Norway, Spain, and Switzerland. A lot of countries used to have wealth tax in the past, but they have abolished because of the uh, problems or implementation costs involved with this. Sue, let's bring Sue. What do you make of what Ron, Ron Jana said? Well, she's absolutely right about um, 
capital gains tax is not producing that much. It's always been one of the criticisms of it. Is it's yes, good, but it's it's inadequate in the face of what's needed for real redistribution. Right. And it's a high progressive tax rate, like taxing corporates, um, lifting income tax levels so the rich pay proportionally a lot more, and the low income and middle income people a lot less. Things like financial transaction taxes, pollution taxes. There's inheritance taxes, which many countries have, which we don't have. There's a lot of ways at getting at it, um, and it's it's a matter of the political will for redistribution or carrying on like we are with the rich getting richer and the poor getting a hell of a lot poorer. Yeah, and I think I think just actually the elephant in the room is that we need to understand we don't have enough money at the moment as a country and as a government to do to cover the things that we need to cover. Okay, then on that note, uh, Dr. Gupta, um, wave your magic senior taxation wand. And give us the tax that would actually help uh, bring in the money to help address issues that we're going to be discussing on the panel today. For example, uh, our huge unmet need in health. What could we do? I, I agree absolutely what you are saying. Yes, there is a need to have more revenues for the government, for the councils, um, to keep economy growing. Um, For example, as I have said earlier um, in one of my research, that um, housing crisis, a lot of people are homeless um, and there are increasing rents and people can't pay the rents. They are sleeping in cars and all these sort of things. So we have to come up with some form of tax um, which can play a some role in contributing revenues to the government. So what I think is um, empty home tax could be, like land holding tax, could be one um, of a tax which could play a small role. It may not magically uh, solve all the problem, but it will contribute to reducing the incentives for people to hold right. the property an and empty, who are holding, the rich people. An empty home tax. We discussed this. Uh, uh, Dr Gupta has been doing some work on this, Sue, and uh, found that even just Queenstown, you could uh, reap about a couple of hundred million dollars a year yes. just uh, because Canada does this. Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's, idea. It's not it's great a bad idea. idea. It's something that perhaps could have been made more of uh, yeah. in the last six months. Absolutely, and there's a lot of other tax measures that, or rating measures that could be taken with housing as well, like taxing um, property um, to the extent that that really you start to shift property into public and communal and community no. ownership rather than keeping our whole, so much of our market in private ownership. Tax and rates could do it if we had the political will. Ranjana, very nice to have you on the show again. Kia ora. Thank you. That's uh, Ranjana Gupta, their senior taxation lecturer at uh, Auckland University of Technology. It is uh, 18 past four. We have Sue Bradford and Scott Campbell on this afternoon. To uh, another issue here, there is an uproar in Tamaki Makoto today over the sudden announcement of a plan to remove all car parks and loading zones on Karangahape Road to make way for an expected increase in 
buses. The change is scheduled to be in place by the end of this week, leaving locals frustrated by the lack of a consultation process. Local businesses and shoppers alike do not want the car parks removed. Even the Mayor, Wayne Brown, he's voices disapproval. Uh, he lives actually in an apartment just uh, off K-Road, actually. But Jamie Holloway is the general manager of the K-Road Business Association. Kia ora, Jamie. Kia ora. How do you feel about this? Uh, so, at the end of the week, what are we talking about? No car parks and loading zones? Yeah, it's, it's a little more complex than that. There's already a bus lane there. And they were all, we know they've been considering changes because, because we're going to have a uh, railway station opening pretty soon. So that was all supposed to happen yeah. at the same time. So this Auckland Transport just ringing me on the phone now. So it's a bit of a moving piece. Um, on the other line. Um, hi, Auckland. Uh, hi, AT, if you're, if you're listening to this. Yeah, so no, you, no, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't merged the calls. Um, the, the changes that, that they're going to take an existing bus lane that, 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 that was only a bus lane during the peak hours of the morning, and they were going to make it a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. bus lane taking away the loading zones and taking away the parking that, that was uh, off-peak times so that someone could pop in at 10 past 10 and, and pick themselves up, you know, something good from Fort Green or whatever. Um, huh. Instead of this being uh, something that happened when the station opened and part of a coordinated approach that replaced car traffic with railway traffic and bus traffic and all of that sort of happened, this that sort of slipped through the cracks and um, was kind of dropped on people the Monday before last when we just noticed that all the, all the signs had changed. Oh, so I see. Everybody was really, really shocked. All right. So it's kind of the handling uh, of this is what's getting uh, people really riled up, not a sort of a clean uh, process there, Sue Bradford. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is playing out, Sue. Uh, across the country, isn't it? You know, every second council, large or small, are grappling with okay, how do we get more people cycling into the city, scootering into the city on these dedicated lanes, uh, and thereby, to what extent do we need all of the car parks? What's your take on this, Sue Bradford? Well, it depends. I mean, K Road's a very particular situation and seems a rather obvious place not to have car parks along the side of the road. I do feel um, that the businesses need loading areas. Of course. Presumably down the back somewhere. <laughs> um, and uh, as someone who's forced to bring the car to the city pretty much because I live in a rural area and I can't get public transport from home to Auckland City, I'm also aware that for some people, for a whole lot of different reasons, you do need car parks. Um, but they don't have to be right in the middle of all the public transport, cycling and walking places. And, and um, situations like K Road really lend themselves to um, being a, a beautiful boulevard and a public transport and walking cycling zone. So it sounds like the process is really the problem rather than the yeah. overall goal. Right. Stay there, Jamie. Uh, Scott, oh, this, is a, this is a big deal in Tauranga as well. 
It is a big deal in Tauranga, and just noting that uh, as, a, as somebody who is an advisor to Auckland Transport, I'll just yes, be, be careful on this one. Thanks but, for the declaration. But, uh, but, but I do know that Auckland Transport, they have apologised today for the lack of that process and, and what happened, and I understand that there will be a pause put on this yep. for, to, to give some uh, time to actually go back and discuss it. But um, as you say, lots of councils are facing this, and we are actually in Tauranga as well too. We're about to lose something like 150 car parks right in downtown Tauranga. It's actually a car park, not just car car parks on the side of the street. Um, and our CBD is doing it really tough as it is at the moment. Um, Tauranga has the highest dependency on car use and we don't have a good bus service. So until we have a better bus service, and I think that's you know something that all councils are grappling with, we have to have a good PT system to actually get people out of cars. Yeah, is that the deal? I mean, I see here, uh, Jamie, uh, that there will be... Um, Restricted loading hours when a new Western Express service from Westgate to the city via the Northwestern Motorway and K Road begins. I guess the point I'm making is uh, aren't you, as a business association, going to be wrapped and very happy when all those busloads of people get dropped into your fair street and shop? I think, as um, both Sir and Scott said, it's, um, it's been a communication and and handling of the process thing, in that businesses can make good decisions when they've given a bit of time and, and, and good information. So we're really keen to see the modelling on how many of uh, Auckland Transport's modelling on passengers coming to Karangahapi. And and we you know we know that the Northern Express has been fantastic. We think that we we think that the Northwestern Express is a fantastic idea. We just we just want the information in advance, that's all. Um, and, and Scott's right, um, Auckland Transport have been in touch today to say okay. that they are putting a pause on these changes to give everyone a chance to tie high and catch their breath. And I'm talking with the members about the details of that because I understand they're going to be putting, that's going to give us a pause on the loading zones, but it's not going to give us any pause on the parking. So, um, yeah, it, it's a moving, it's a bit of a moving face. It's been an interesting week. Oh, good on you, Jamie, for being with us. Just fine, before you go, I've heard that, we're actually talking about this off air, that actually uh, th- th- there's a general mood that businesses are uh, doing it a bit tough at the moment for whatever reason. Uh, that's the case with uh, K-Road too? Uh, it's definitely the case. Right. I, I think it's the case for everybody. Just, yeah. um, just disposable incomes are down. Um, people who do have disposable income are able to travel the world. So, you know, somebody who might have been coming to your restaurant last week has decided to go to France instead this week. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so, I, I mean, it's it, it, it's tough trading conditions anyway, which which makes all this stuff um, just just that much more that much more important that we get it right. The Northern Expressway is really good. It comes in on Fanshawe Street. Karangahubi yes. Road is not Fanshawe Street. It's got way more intricacy and delicacy to it than that. And so we just, yeah, we just need we just need to get these details right. Appreciate your time, Jamie, and all the very best on what is a uh, a wonderful, wonderful part of Auckland City. That's uh, Jamie Holloway, the general manager of the Karangahubi Road Business uh, Association. Uh, there, it is twenty six past four. You are on the panel RNZ National. Keep the feedback coming. Uh, what is your most hated miss? Pronounced word, gosh, the feedback is extraordinary. 
Um, many here's, well, here's another one. Many people, even those who use language for a job, say Pacific instead of specific. Uh, and um, Scott has asked me here. He wants to know: Is it a ton or is it a ton? Two one zero one. The panel. <laughs> I just have to say that, Scott, because I want to know too. Um, Twenty six past four. But to this, this was raised by Thomas. Coughlin in the New Zealand Herald. That Air New Zealand Coro Club membership, the gift every MP gets but none declares, saying that unlike most MPs, perks like flights and taxis, MPs' lounge access isn't actually paid for by the taxpayer. Instead, a kind of access is gifted by the airline itself. The fact that it was confirmed to the Herald by Parliament. The words of unseated MP Dan Rosewarne summed up the attachment of the quarter club by MPs, saying that post-parliamentary life was made real when he saw the red lights of doom when trying to swipe in. And I closed my eyes and I, I pictured you, Sue Bradford, at uh, Auckland Airport, trying to use your access uh, to quarter club. Oh, decline. <laughs> You get a pretty good idea when it's going to happen. And I often think about how hard it is for people to resign from Parliament. Um, like I resigned um, mid-term um, for, in, for reasons that were nothing to do with the election. And um, how hard that decision is. And I often saw other MPs off over the years that I thought possibly should have done the same thing. Um, and I think one of the hardest things people find, if people are really honest, is the loss of of perks like that, uh, you know, of the travel, of the the sense of being part of this elite community, of this this power broking. It's not just about the money. Um, it's not just about your politics and your party. It's also how how after a while in Parliament, all of this becomes part of your being. And um, mm. for some of us leaving Parliament, knowing that we are most likely never going to be in that situation again. For some people, they they belong in that elite already. A lot of us don't. Um, and I think that's one of the barriers to people leaving Parliament when they not leaving Parliament when they should. And it's also another um, invitation for people to stand for political parties and get into Parliament again, perhaps sometimes when they shouldn't, because these kind of things are very attractive. Well, and it's that, a very poor motivation for having a career as an MP. I have never heard that before, uh, the, the, the actual importance of those small perks, like quarter club membership, uh, because it's actually, Scott, being part of a club. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's such a bubble, right? Wellington, and particularly around the Beehive in the, in the parliamentary precinct, is a bubble. And you do get sucked into it. And I think even some of those things like, um, you know, you, you all know this too, when you walk into a room, somebody says, oh, the MP's here, and, and you, know, you start going up the elite status once you get all oh, the ministers here and all these other sort of things. So, it, and it is you, you, they do get attracted to it and and caught up. Even even people in the offices. Well, you see, a lot of those par- a lot of people in Parliament now come through the parliamentary staffing system. They start as EAs or as research assistants, um, and then work their way up. And the next minute, they're standing for Parliament. Next minute, they're in there. Mm. Oh. I mean, when I lost my tags as a, as a somebody who used to go around the parliamentary precinct, I was gutted when I lost my tag, <laughs> and it was just to get in the security. <laughs> Does it take a while for that to come down? Because being part of that, I don't want to say elite, but part of that sort of inner core, I guess. Oh, it is. It is an elite. And um, it's a shock when you enter it and you've never been part of it. It was certainly a shock to people like me and Nandal Tansosh when, when we entered Parliament really out of street and community politics, your frontline street politics. Um, but it is a shock 
when you leave it, at least I'd, I'd made that decision myself. Mm. It wasn't the shock of suddenly being not elected, like for a lot of yeah. MPs just now. I do feel for them, people that lose when they were genuinely hoping they'd get back in. I mean, how that that's really tough. Do you think... Okay. And you suddenly crash back to the real world. And some people will naturally have enough wealth in their own life to be able to continue to access wealth and do power, you, but do, others don't. Do you think... Let me jump in. Do you think that would it would mean something for... An MP who's listening uh, to actually say no to it's not called Quarter Club now. It's actually I think it's called the a- a New Zealand Club or whatever it's called. I don't know. Do you think it would mean something for a member of Parliament to be sitting out with the everyday person just out of the lounge there, having a cup of coffee in your whatever whatever it is your. Uh, do, do you know what I found interesting about this story was? A, I wanted to know whether or not the outgoing MP was 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 taking the Mickey first and foremost. I don't it know could whether, be it whether, too. whether he was just joking, but but also I think um, uh, just Corey Club when you're doing business is a really good place to be because you're able to get away from all the noise and, and focus on that. Um, I found it sort of fascinating that New Zealand just does this and it gives it's not it's a perk that New Zealand gives, which is in That's some right. ways you know that, that, is it a lobbying right. thing? Is it something that New Zealand has declared before? That's it. You see, yeah. Anyway, very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Sue Bradford, Scott Campbell, with me this afternoon.